Good morning. It's cold outside this morning, wasn't it? I think it kept some of us from trying to venture out. But it is good to see you in church this morning. Opportunity for us to worship the Lord together. If you would, please take your Bibles and turn with me to the uh, sixth chapter of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 6, beginning at verse 13. And we will conclude with that chapter this morning. The Word of God says, Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And they raised their eyes and saw the ark and were glad to see it. The ark came into the field of Joshua the Bethshemite and stood there where there was a large stone. And they split the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. The Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was with it, in which were the articles of gold, and put them on a large stone. And the men of Bethshemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrifices that day to the Lord. When the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned to Ekron that day. These are the golden tumors which the Philistines returned for a guilt offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, one for Ekron. And the golden mice according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both of fortified cities and of country villages. The large stone on which they set the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua the Bethshemite. He struck down some of those men of Bethshemesh because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. He struck down of all the people 50,070 men. And the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great slaughter. The men of Bethshemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jearim, saying, The Philistines have brought back the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. Father, we thank you for your word. Now, Father, in and through this word, Father, speak to us your truth. Father, that uh, we may apply those godly principles in our lives. Uh, Father, that we, uh, not like Philistia and not like some of Israel, but Lord, we may approach you with repentant hearts and broken spirits, Father, that we may mourn for the Lord our God, that he may be present among us and with us and through us. In Jesus' name, amen. In Isaiah chapter 55 and verse 7, we read, Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. So why why should I begin this message with this verse from Isaiah? What has Isaiah got to do with 1 Samuel chapter 6? Don't you find it somewhat amazing that Israel was so foolish in the first place that they would even dare to bring the Ark of the Covenant of God into a battlefield? 
And then again, why would they do so under the spiritual leadership of two of the biggest reprobates in the Old Testament, Hophni and Phinehas? And then again, think of how Israel acted after they lost the ark uh, to the Philistines. In verse 13 of our text, if you look at that, verse 13 says, uh, the people of Beth were reaping their harvest sweet in the valley. The ark is gone. It's been gone for almost a year. And they, they, the Israelites, were going on with their everyday business with not a care in the world concerning the ark of God that had been in the hands of the Philistines for almost, almost three quarters of a year. Not a care just going about every everyday business, doing, doing what they do. They became complacent and careless concerning the whereabouts of the ark. It's not here anymore. I guess somebody else has it. And let's just take care of harvesting our wheat. No provision. No plan, no action was taken in the effort to retrieve it. They simply thought it better to just return to everyday life. Friends, please be assured that God will not allow His church to remain desolate while she is undergoing attack from the enemy. You see, as Israel is under attack from the the Philistines, Israel just kind of laid down her arms, lost courage, uh, timidity, and cowardice seemed to be the, 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 the plan of the day. And so that early church just sat there while the enemy just rode over them, used them as a doormat. They just sat there, and they just took it, and they lost their ark of God. They, they lost that symbol that says God is present with us. They were willing for someone else to administrate its significance. But God will not allow His church to be desolate in these attacks from the enemy. Israel was so caught up in the affairs of this life that, that they had decided it best to leave the ark of God in the hands of unregenerate men. Let, let the lost, let the unsaved, let the reprobates, let the unregenerate people of this world have control of the ark of God. The very thing that Israel is not even to lay its eyes upon because of its holiness and sacredness. They said, well, let the world have it. Should we be like Israel and leave the affairs of the church of God in the hands of others? Is there any sign of repentance on the part of Israel? Is there any reformation or renewal of the heart? No, a thousand times no. They continued in their merry way in conducting the affairs of their life and were willing to do so without any sign of God's presence. And isn't it ironic today 
that we hear of people who are people of God, who say that they attend church, who are willing to meet and there's not even a sign of the presence of God. No no word of God is preached. No administration of those things which are considered holy. Drew spoke of, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he spoke of our being ambassadors for God. There's no ambassadorship. When God is not welcome into the very sanctuary which bears his name, it's like we have delivered over to the world that sacredness that belongs to God. Although they had no inclination or courage to attempt any rescue of the ark, yet when the ark did appear before them, they welcomed it. They welcomed its return with gladness. Now, carefully notice verse 14. Look at verse 14. It says, The ark came to the field of Joshua, the Beshemite, and stood there. There was a large stone, and they split the wood of the cart and offered their cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. Do you see where the cart and the cows were offered as a sacrifice to the Lord? Perhaps, perhaps now, perhaps such an offering was their way of making a commitment that the ark of God should never again leave the sanctuary of God's people. The sacrifice was made, according to verse 14, upon a large stone. And folks, isn't it true that we too have a rock upon which we see a sacrifice made on our behalf? As you, you, you can't miss it if you read through the, through the New Testament. That there has been a sacrifice, a sacrifice made on our behalf. And there is a rock there. And there is a person there. And there is a sacrifice and an offering there. For in our behalf, that we, the body of Christ, find our permanent sanctuary there. A place of refuge and eternal hope. Jesus tells Peter in Matthew 16, 18. Upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Friends, isn't it time for the church of Jesus Christ to quit attending to business as usual and make certain that she is prepared to stand firm on the rock which is her her cornerstone? Israel took the ark into battle, and she lost The Philistines took the ark to their temple shrine, and she was decimated. The Jews thought it the prerogative, their prerogative to look into the ark of God, and she was fatally judged. And friends, listen, there is no appeasing God on our part. There is no prideful look at Him in which He is satisfied. There is no sacrifice we should make that removes our sin. 
God has given us a Redeemer, a hope, a Savior, an anchor upon which our souls hold fast, steady our lives, secure our eternity, seal our destiny. That hope, that Savior is Jesus. We live in a time which we are being bombarded by the lustful voices of this world. So much noise, so much rambling of thoughts and ideas and vain aspirations of the human heart. Oh, my friends, listen. Listen to the words of this, this old hymn. We don't sing it much anymore. But the words still, still ring true. In times like these, we need a Savior. In times like these, we need an anchor. Be very sure, be very sure, your anchor holds and grips the solid rock. This rock is Jesus. Yes, he's the one. This rock is Jesus, the only one. Be very sure, be very sure, your anchor holds and grips the solid rock. Verse 18 of our text states, the large stone on which they set the ark of the Lord is a witness this day in the field of Joshua the Bethlehemite. I ask, what is the lasting witness that we have? Cart and cattle were offered as a sacrifice and a sign of the people's consecration to their fellowship with the Lord. And what do you sense in yourselves, my friends? When you read Paul's admonition to the church at Rome when he writes, Therefore I urge you, to, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Friends, we are to engage ourselves in the duty of worship. And to attend to the calling in which we have been called. You and I, we are the church. God has issued us a calling. He has not called us to just come and sit down in a pew. It's a call to action. It's a call to bear the banner of Christ. It's a call to enlistment. In his service. Not to be still and have the world run over us. Not to have some other agency apart from the church control us. Others are not our head. We have but one head and that is Jesus Christ. Our command comes from above. Not from this earth. There is no agency. There is no entity. There is no organization. There is no institution that issues orders to the church. We have but one head, and that is Jesus Christ. I believe the day of Christ's return is imminent, it can be at any moment. So I ask, where should our Savior find us? We are the church, the army of Christ. Where should he find us? Hiding in fear from whatever pestilence or affliction that has come our way? 
Should that be the church? Should we not be more diligent in our rallying around the clear and unmistakable teaching of the Word of God that says not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day dawning near? In this concluding but long point, I'd like for you to look at verses 19 through 21 of our text. It says in verses 19 through 21, He struck down some of the men of Bethshemesh because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. He struck down of all the people 50,070 men. Now, you know, there is all kinds of interpretations about that. There weren't 50,070 people living in Bethshemesh. Could have been a neighboring community. Some translations say 70 of 50,000 because the way it reads, he struck down 70 and 50,000. I'm not here to argue with the scripture. Whether he struck down one or 50 million is insignificant. The number, the number is not the thing. What's important here is the issue that is at hand. The issue that is at hand is not, is not the number of people that died. The issue is this, that whoever it was had the audacity in verse 19 to look into the ark of the Lord. Whether that number was 70 or 50,070 or 50 million. Whoever it was or how many it was, those people had the audacity, the prideful arrogance to look into God's ark. They felt that we're God's people. We are entitled to it. Is that true? That because we are God's people that we are entitled to whatever we feel we're entitled to? The ark, the ark of God, the ark of the covenant of the Lord was visible only to the high priest and only one time a year. And that in and of itself was through a, a thick cloud of smoke that came from the altar of incense inside the Holy of Holies. And now this ark was open to the gazing eyes of the entire community of Beth Shemesh. The people gawked at its presence, and soon their reverence turned into pride and familiarity. They began to covet the very thing that was forbidden for them to look into. There's a lesson to be learned. It is a great dishonor to God for us to long to look unto those secret things which belong to Him alone. In Deuteronomy chapter 29 and 29, 
are these words. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. Do you suppose that we have become careless and irreverent to that which should point us to God? We take lightly, we take lightly those things that should be revered and honored. I don't know of another book that exists that starts with this word, holy. Holy Bible. The holy good news of God. Do we take it lightly? Does it speak to us? Does it point us to God? Should we allow the world to take control of what we should speak concerning the Word of God? Should we look lightly at it and say, here, if you want it, you you tell us what we shall say concerning the Word of God. Should we not listen to the apostles when they stood before those religious leaders? When they were commanded not to speak in Christ's name, should we fear you Or should we fear Him? Should we speak what you want us to speak? Or should we speak what He wants us to speak? No one should ever allow the church to take lightly those things which God has made holy. And that is His Word. Have we become more concerned as to how we relate to others than we are about how our actions and attitudes and words relate to God? Our church, our ministries, our deportment ought to reflect the fact that it is Christ in us who is our hope of glory. Oh, my stars, we are not to embrace the culture by looking, acting, or thinking as they do. We are to engage our culture not by our prideful looking at our own spiritual relationship with our God, but by our very desire to share with our world the blessedness of knowing Jesus Christ. It's about our sharing not our prideful possessing of the gospel. It's about the gospel that does not change. The gospel that does not require us to pretty it up, water it down, lighten its message, colloquialize its language, delegitimize its truth, elevate humanity, demote God's sovereignty, or debate its authority. 
When the Lord struck down a number of those who pridefully looked into the ark, they then began to think and act just as the Philistines did. They did the same thing Philistia did. Here's what Israel said. Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom, listen, and to whom shall he go up from us? In a sense, they were saying, let's get him out of the way. Felicia said, he went from Gath to Ekron to Ashdod to Ashkelon. He went to all those different Philistine places. And when the ark came to Bethshemesh, and God struck some of them down because of their prideful, arrogant look into the ark. They says, let's get this thing out of here. Instead of bending the knee with repentant, mournful souls and hearts, let's get God out of here. Just like at Gadara, when Christ had healed the demoniac, let's get him out of here. Just as in the book of Revelation, when all the wrath comes upon the world and the people say, God, get away from me. No repentance, no reformation, no renewal of the heart. The Bible tells us that we're to draw near to God and He will draw near to us. James 4, 8. Our problem is perhaps that in our drawing near to God, there's a requirement. You know, I read James 4, 8 for you. Draw near to God, He'll draw near to you. But the rest of James says this. If you look at James 4, 9, it says, cleanse, or James 4, 8 says, cleanse our hands and purify our hearts. Folks, it's about how we treat our sin. It was about Bethshemesh and how they treated their sin. It was about Philistia, how they treated their sin. It was about Hophni and Phinehas and how they treated their sin. They were unwilling to draw near to God. They would not cleanse their hands or, nor purify their hearts. Now, I just shared this verse from James 4.8 with you. But the commentary on 4.8, by the way, the commentary on 4.8 is found in the following verse in James 4.9. In that verse, in that verse in James 4.9, it says, let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. The issue is this. It is what the Israelites got wrong. It's what Philistians got wrong. It's what the people of Bethshemesh got wrong. They all treated God with their reverence and their sin with prideful arrogance. You see, James 4.8 it's telling us what we need to do. That we need to cleanse our hands and, and purify our hearts. And why we need to do that is because we take so lightly our sin. He talks about laughter. And he talks about joy. 
The laughter and joy are not in God. The laughter and joy are in our sin. That we look at our sin and we laugh about it and we joke about it. We find, we find it irreverent to be reverent. We find it cool to act sinfully. Let your laughter, let that laughter concerning sin be turned into mourning. Let your joy concerning your irreverence be turned to gloom. That's what James is saying. That's what's happening here in 1 Samuel chapter 6. They all treated God with irreverence. The church cannot treat God with irreverence. The church cannot treat God with prideful arrogance. It is not. When I stand here, it's not how I relate to you. My my issue is not how I relate to you. My issue is how I relate to God. Your issue is not how you relate to me or to your neighbor. Your issue is how do you relate to God? That my actions and my attitude ought to say, this is how I, this is what I think of God. Not what I think about people, but what do I think about God? If I think properly about God, then I will treat you with dignity and honor and respect. But I cannot treat you with dignity and honor and respect if I have a low estimation of God. If I look at God and His sovereignty, then I look at you as God's creatures who need to have that relationship with Him that is built upon the substitutionary sacrifice atonement of Jesus Christ. Friends, is it not time that we bowed our knees and with broken hearts confess our sins before a holy God? Is it not time for our repentance to be displayed before a God who sits enthroned above all the hosts of heaven? And I, I had this in mind as I was just thinking about that last statement, and I'll close with this. That if, if I could think of, of heaven built on tears, that there was that cloud of witnesses that is above us, above us, and then there's God's holy angels. And then there is the seraphs and the cherubs above that. And above all, above all that is in this universe. Above all that is in this universe. Above every, above every person. Above every planet. Above every star. Above every, every person in the host of glory. Such so a holy God. Seated on His temple. On His throne in His temple. How should we relate to him?
Do we look at God and say, Lord, please come near me? A vile human sinner that I am, Lord, I cannot approach you with my sin. But in Christ, you approach me and you pursue me. Should that not be who we are, the church? Let's not cast him away and say, go somewhere else. We should welcome him. Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Do we hear him? Father, thank you. Thank you today, Father, for your word. Lord, we, we, we need not be prideful and arrogant about who we are. But Father, whatever righteousness is ours is ours in Christ alone. Father, may we with humble hearts share this good news with a world that so desperately needs you. Lord, may we not cast you aside, but Lord, may we come to you and bend a knee with broken heart. In Jesus' name, amen.